This is Hypercritical. It's a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses. Nothing is so perfect that it can't be complained about by my co-host, John Syracusa. I'm Dan Benjamin. Today is October 14th, 2011. This is episode number 38. Our two sponsors are EasyDNS.com and Rackspace.com. We'll tell you more about them as we continue on with this program John Syracuse, how are you? I'm doing fine. You sound good. You sound well. Yeah, I haven't gotten sick yet, but I'm, I'm getting there. Well, you have kids. Kids are out in the world. They it's that catch time every... of year. Everyone in the family has a flu shot now, I think, except for me. Oh. How effective are those? I've heard uh, different things about the efficacy of uh, the flu shot. I, I can't tell from year to year. I've I've been getting them pretty much since I've had kids, and I haven't noticed a big difference i still always get a cold or several of them during the winter oh that's a cold that's not the flu. So I was like, well maybe it would be worse you know i i can't tell the difference i don't think a flu shot a flu. does anything for a cold and you can yeah tell. you probably don't believe medicine works either so no, of course i do but i'm saying why would a flu shot protect you from the, the cold well it's just protecting you against one particular strain of virus and so maybe you don't get that strain if you get the flu shot but there are other strains i guess they're less severe i don't know sometimes they make the flu shot wrong where they try to predict what strain it will be and they get it wrong but i figure it's better than nothing no it's i'm not saying don't do it i'm saying i wouldn't expect any protection from the common cold from a flu shot i don't know i i still get sick during the winter but i survive flu's not cold dude you ready for some follow-up i would love that the follow-up is piling up i keep skipping over we well last week last week there was good reason to to do something different but uh, let's just start with the follow-up then we'll start start with it i'm looking at the, these links that you put in here yeah last week pushed a lot of stuff out yeah uh, i should i should look at the links too this is the problem i put these links in and then during the show i forget to look at the page where i put the links in and then i i skip over stuff all right so i'll do a, a limited selection of follow-up okay so this this is a one from a couple weeks ago i think that i just never got to uh, there was a new york times story uh, I think it was just on the online site, not on the paper. I don't I don't actually know. I only see the online version. Uh, it was part of a larger section about cooking, and the little mini article was called, Why is my toaster so bad? <laughs> and I've put a link in the show notes. I feel this is partial vindication of my toaster obsession. It's a very short article. It just explains toasters seem like they used to be better, uh, and now they're not anymore. Uh, the article didn't extrapolate from that like we did in the show about that they worsen more diverse that the you know consumer electronics and other products are expanding in the variety of options you have but decreasing in quality sort of a race to the bottom type thing so this, this little snippet did not go into that but i do feel partially vindicated that something appeared in the new york times having to do with the low quality of toasters is this one of your ghost written pieces no i would have been much more severe than than this <laughs> thing this was just like a i think it's like maybe it was in there sunday Frilly magazine, lifestyle, health, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not on the news page. Mm. Uh, on the link in the show notes, by the way, when you click on it, it brings up this big interactive thing that has multiple sections. The first section is, can a dinner, can a dinner party be stress-free? That's not the one you want. You have to click on the little sidebar. I tried very hard to get a URL that would bring you to that sidebar being clicked, but short of me writing a big long JavaScript thing, uh, it wasn't happening. So you'll have to click on, why is my toaster so bad? It's the second item down on the left side. Uh, I wanted to tell, we talked a little bit about my family and my mother calling me about the Steve Jobs thing and, and the last show where we talked about uh, that stuff. 
And I did have another story about my mother that I wanted to share. Mm. During, during that same conversation, uh, she mentioned, I was talking, we were talking about the podcast and she actually listens to the podcast. And she, I always tell her that I think it's kind of silly for her to listen because we're talking about a lot of technical stuff that she's not interested in at all and really has no background in. Uh, of course, she listens because I'm her son, right? And she said, well, I actually learn stuff from your podcast too, things that I didn't know. I can follow along and I learn new information. And she said, for instance, in a recent show, I learned about that when you mentioned about that wiggle mode on, on iOS devices. Yeah. I, I, she learned about that. She, she said, I never knew. That's what that thing was when they when the little icons are wiggling and everything. You could uh, rearrange them and stuff like that. And now, Grant, this is someone who has had an iPod Touch since the first generation, and uses mostly iPod Touches. Uh, my sister has one; she has one, and she said that every time she saw that, she thought she'd done something bad. And the, the same thing to, to when my sister would see it, my mother would tell her, "Maybe, maybe you messed something up. Why are they shaking?" And eventually, they would just like paw at it and figure out how to stop the thing from shaking, but. First of all, I feel like this is a personal failing that my my own mother, my family didn't know what that was. I guess you could accidentally activate it if you just if you tap just a little bit too long or you're lazy, you don't lift your finger up, right? And then it goes into the wiggle mode for yeah. rearranging the icons. Yeah. But her conception of how computers work was that this I guess that this that these little shaking icons weren't something that had to be explicitly programmed by someone, but it was like a an outward symptom of something that had gone wrong. Uh, the thing she compared it to was like in a Windows NT. You remember when you put in the, in the bad username and password and yeah. the little thing would shake back and forth? Next did that too, right? Did yeah. Windows NT do that? I know Next did. I don't, I don't, I don't think so. All right. Well, uh, uh, I think Mac OS, does Mac OS 10 still do it too? This is where you, you're prompted for a username and password to log in. You put in bad information and the, the little thing that you type the username and password in shakes back and forth really fast, like it's shaking its head. Uh, and so she thought this was some manifestation of the iPod telling her, no, you've done something wrong or I'm about to explode or I'm about to crash. <laughs> right. It's like, please stop. Yeah. Please she, stop. I, I guess she didn't notice the little X's that suddenly appear. Well, over, if anything, uh, that's like a big warning. Like, don't, don't touch me. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I, it just goes to show, don't assume. And this is someone who's used Mac since the original Mac. We've had Macs our entire life. She has iOS devices and she uses them all the time. She has iPods. It's not, like she's unfamiliar with Apple technology. I just don't know how someone can use an iPod Touch for however many years she's been using it and not not know that this exists. Uh, let's see. What do we have next? I'll tell you something that's funny about that wiggle. Wiggle mode? Wiggle yeah. mode. If you... Um, you can go into the... Maybe you've done this with your iPod Touches that you give to your kids... But uh, we have a first-generation iPad that my boy uses. And I'd, he'd, he would delete apps sometimes. And then he would get... You know, I don't think he did it on purpose. Or if he did, he was just... You know, he was experimenting, not knowing that if he puts it into wiggle mode and then presses the X, that the app will be gone. I don't think he knew what that was. I think he just was experimenting with it and deleted <laughs> deleted some apps that he, wa- <laughs> that he wanted. So... Uh, there, there are uh, settings, of course, that you can parental control settings and things like that that allow you to to prevent your children from deleting an app. And I had enabled a whole bunch of parental controls, not only because I didn't want him buying things, because I didn't want him deleting apps and then getting upset and saying, "Daddy, where's my SpongeBob app?" And uh, what's interesting is it, it, you can still put it into wiggle mode, but the little X's don't appear. Uh, it just they just wiggle, and you can rearrange them, but you can't can't delete anything. So that might also be good as a uh, 
a parental control in the other sense of the word. Yeah, that's the other that's the <laughs> common joke of parental controls. Is right. It's for parents to protect their children, but really it's mostly for older children to configure devices so their parents can't screw them up. Right. Like, uh, what was that called? Simple Finder? Where you yeah. just had the big clicky button to well, launch? There, there was also at ease. Remember at ease? At ease. Yeah, big, some big honking, juicy beveled buttons there. There was Simple Finder too, you know? And my mother always, when I tease her about these things, she always says, someday this will be you. Your children will be making fun of you and you won't know how to work there. <laughs> Do you devices. think that's true? I tell her this is not true. This yeah. will never This will never be true. And I will be sad at the day, if this day ever comes, that my children can beat me in video games. Uh, but I will I'll forestall that day. But I don't think there will ever be a day where I just am as incompetent in technology as are the the generation prior but to there, us is. there are i think i think there are certain things though like I'll, I'll give you an example my grandfather um a very very smart man he was a he was a scientist he he was a metallurgist he uh you know very very smart analytical uh incredibly you know gifted uh mind and when he was uh when he was you know probably in his 70s 60s or 70s you remember web tv Remember that thing? I do, unfortunately. He got one of these things. And he worked. I mean, he knew how to work. He had no computer experience or anything. He worked it just fine. But, like, there were little things in there that I remember would throw him off. Like, for example, when you know how when you see an email chain or if you were to forward something, how uh, it might append a signature to the bottom of the email? Like, there are settings that would, would get around this. But people, I guess, were sending him things in email, and their signatures would be appended to the bottom of it. And to him, this was puzzling. He's like, it, it, are these people trying to take credit? You know, like somebody would send him the body of an article that they would like for him to read. And at the bottom, it would have that person's name. And he'd be like, does that mean the person wrote it or thought they wrote it? Like little details like that. There's sort of the culture that surrounds technology. I think as, as an older person, John, you might not understand. You might not get it. You might understand the technology involved. But I think eventually they will be beating you at video so games. Some uh, uh, that will just come from hand-eye coordination deterioration with age. I'm sure that will happen, but I, I'm saying I won't be uh, like afraid of technology or not understand no. how to use it. Now, someone in the in the chat room, uh, Adama Wolf, says that technology will be something completely different than we can conceive of, and and that it's happened every generation before us. I, I disagree with that. Actually, I think there's just a couple of inflection points. There's pre and post industrial revolution where you were like farmers and whatever, and then there was machines. And in that generation, if you if your parents grew up in the sort of agrarian rural pre-industrial revolution age they don't understand this huge influx of new machines and gadgets and technology and manufacturing and interchangeable parts and all that business right so that was one inflection point and then i think there was a stretch there where from one generation to the next there wasn't this huge leap you know fathers and sons both like to tinker with internal combustion engines and that that stayed the same for a while and the second inflection point is turing machines uh you know uh, uh transistors uh, silicon chips basically where Suddenly, they started to infect everything, and that was a new thing where we can make these very, very, essentially very tiny electronic machines, you know, on printed circuit boards and microchips and stuff like that. And that infected everything. So then you had one generation who didn't have to deal with computers and microchips, and the next generation where they were everywhere. So that if the father and son both loved internal combustion engines, the father would bemoan the fact that now he can't work on his car because you need a $10,000 special car computer to hook up to it to do anything useful, right? Except for change the oils and the spark plugs and stuff like that. So that's the second inflection point. And I think we were born 
just as the second inflection point was happening and we are acclimated to it and we're used to keeping up with it. And I think we'll be fine as long as there's not a third inflection point in our lifetime. And a third inflection point could be something like biological-based technology or gene splicing or something that we're not, that didn't happen in our formative years that we're not prepared to deal with. And then, you know, if our kids are using these, uh, genetically modifying themselves to use uh, neural implants, or whatever, I, I think that stuff is so far off we don't have to worry. So I think that our generation is safe and we will, aside from the just the typical of like, getting physically less able, not being able to see small text on screen, just the physical deterioration of aging that we'll have to deal with. Obviously, there'll be that, but not so much the inability to understand, to, to keep up with technology because we're on, we're on top of it. Do you, do you envision a time where you just stop paying attention to this stuff and just not be interested at all and not keep up anymore and be like, ah, whatever I have now is fine. I'm not going to look at it again. And then your son or grandson will have something and you'll have no idea what it is. I, I just don't see that happening. I don't see it happening, but you know, it's hard to predict what's going to happen 20, 30, 40 years from now and where your interests will be. You think after you retire that you'll still follow technology the way that you do now? Yeah. And I, I use uh, in the thing I wrote about Steve Jobs, I mentioned my grandfather and he he was one of the big reasons that I, we got a Mac in the family. He got a Mac first and then we got ours shortly after after seeing his. And he kept up with technology basically till the day he died and was on top of it all. And this is someone who didn't grow up with technology, who worked for the Navy his whole life and worked with his hands and his hobby was woodworking. So it's not, you know, I think it's in my genes and I think I will definitely be on top of it. That was a big sidebar. Let's continue yeah. with follow up. All right, go ahead. Uh, there's a, a couple of people complaining about my could care less, couldn't care less thing, which is really your could care less, couldn't care less thing because mm. you were the one who supposedly says it more often, but I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I, could, I could care less about that. I know. Yeah. So, and what I said, uh, I talked to some people about it over email, and a lot of them were disappointed that I was so lax on it. And my point in the previous thing was that the, the not to lose sight of the fact that uh, speech and writing is about communication. The message that some people were getting from that, though, was that I think it's okay to say could care less and that I, and that I do it willingly and I'm not worried about it. I try not to do it. I'm trying to avoid saying this. I would suggest that you not be inaccurate like this. All I was saying was that when I make this mistake, which happens from time to time, I'm not as upset about it as some other people seem to be because in this particular instance, I think everybody knows what I mean. And one of the other instances that was brought up is the misuse of literally, you know, where the people, you see a lot of jokes made about that or the same thing with the, the unnecessary quotation marks and signs and the use of the word literally to be, mean the opposite. I think that one is much worse. And if I found myself ever doing that one, I'd be much more concerned simply because there's no good alternative and you're squat you're squatting on a legitimate meaning whereas i was saying that i have never heard anybody say i could care less to mean anything other than i couldn't care less but then some people said well that's not actually true because in, i think it was someone from england said in my country people actually do say i could care less to mean the opposite of i couldn't care less and by perverting that meaning you are squatting on top of a perfectly good phrase that other people want to use uh i i don't hear that in the u.s like someone says i couldn't care less and someone says well i could I, maybe it happens. I don't know. But anyway, that the point I get across is that I am not for saying things incorrectly. Uh, it's just I think there is a continuum uh, of how bad it is. And I was saying I don't beat myself up as bad about saying could care less if I do it once in a while as I would if I found myself saying, saying something that I think is worse. Yes, no, we're not, we're not going to talk about flammable and inflammable. Uh, S. Williams in the chat room. Try to get off these uh, grammar arguments. Um, uh, so one more, one more follow up. So we, we've talked a lot about television. That was our show number one and TiVo and my complaints about TiVo and all that stuff. And I, I think I was on the TiVo website recently trying to look up when the, 
premiere of, of The Walking Dead is. I think it's actually in two days, so I yeah. have to make sure my Tebow is going to get to watch. So I was going to the website because sometimes it's the reason I go to the website is because it's so much faster to do try anything, to schedule something, <laughs> do anything through through the website. And the website isn't great. Actually, what I should have done, just done is typed Walking Dead in Google and and you know hit return, pick the first link, and then I could see when the show was premiering. But I wanted to like make sure I had a season pass schedule, so I was going through the website because it's infinitely faster to use my browser, even on Tebow's somewhat pokey website, than it is to flip around with that stupid remote. And I saw on their website when I was there that they have a new TiVo Premiere product. I don't know how old this is. Uh, it may have been around for a while, so I apologize if this is old news to everybody else. But it is the TiVo Premiere Elite. Uh, if you recall, the TiVo Premiere is the new skinnier model that has the flash interface that's horrendously slow and is filled with advertisements and is just worse in pretty much every possible way than the uh, previous interface, despite the fact that it is finally in HD, which is another embarrassment. I don't want to go back into my... TiVo complaints. But that was a good that was a good episode. So I looked at the TiVo premiere and I looked at the specs on the site and here here are the, the relevant specs what makes this the elite one. I'm just waiting for the TiVo premiere elite pro gold. Uh, but anyway. <laughs> has four tuners instead of two, which is good I guess. Uh-huh. I don't I don't feel like I'm limited by two tuners, but occasionally I I'm have two tuners in use. Uh, it has two te- two terabytes hard drive instead of one, so it's 300 hours of HD programming, which is nice. Bigger hard drives become available. It's nice that they're using them. It has one gig of RAM instead of 512. Again, nice to see TiVo actually bumping the hardware specs in their machine instead of shipping the same cruddy stuff. Sure. But then the very next thing I did when I saw the read those specs is I went to Google and typed, uh, it was like TiVo Premier Elite faster. I wanted to see, this is all I need to know is, so, so you got all this stuff. Is this thing faster than the other one or, or faster or speed versus other one? And I found a good link that I put in the show notes of someone. Uh, the, what was the name of this URL? I, I should look this thing up. Uh, why the TiVo Elite is so much faster than the TiVo Premiere. That is music to my ears. That mm. is the exact URL, <laughs> exact URL that I wanted. And here's a quote from that URL. It says, it says it boots in half the time, which I don't really care about because I never reboot it. But then it says you can move through the menus virtually lag-free. Virtually lag-free. Exactly what I wanted to hear. Because my main complaint is that the interface is so horrendously slow. I also would like it if they got rid of all the stupid ads everywhere and it wasn't Flash and all these other things, right? Now, I read that and I was very happy, but then I also thought about the old Cascade uh, dishwasher detergent ad. Do you remember those? Cascade gets your, gets your dishes virtually spotless. I remember that. Yeah, and that you know, virtually spotless means your dishes have spots on them. <laughs> People, that's the that's the that's the literal translation. No. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, I read again. You move through the menus virtually lag free. It means there's still lag, and I don't know, but but it does mean that it's faster than the old one. So I'm excited to see one of these in the wild and try flipping through the menus and see if it doesn't make me want to gouge my eyes out. Uh, so, I'm glad that TiVo is doing something instead of simply going out of business. Uh, I'm not glad that they continue to put ads all over their interface and generally be dumb. I also get these TiVo engagement, uh, not engagement, TiVo survey things that you can sign up for where they send you something once a month or so and you answer survey questions. They ask the most inane things. Uh, and they have little comment boxes, but it's like, how often do you use the TiVo website? Have you found our support on the TiVo website helpful? Have you used our live chat support? No, <laughs> just make your product better. Stop <laughs> asking me about, you know. What do you think we should do this? And I remember the only good question they ever had was once was, do you think we should, uh, would you like a way to uh, 
to not ever show you anything that's standard def, but just show you high def unless there's no high def equivalent or something. I admitted they didn't even ask that. I was like, yes, you should have done this years ago. Your interface should be in HD. You should not show me standard def if there's an HD equivalent. I don't care what channel things are on. Find it for me. Oh, I, don't, I don't want to get into it again. I don't even get all upset. Yeah. So TiVo continues to lurch forward. I'm cautiously optimistic that the Premier Elite will be better. I hope so for you. For the world, Dan. Well, just more for you. Yeah. But I'll tell you what, we stopped using we stopped using our TiVo. You just have all the kids' stuff on Netflix now and streaming? Streaming, and uh, we do have a like a cable company provided DVR that... Oh, yeah, no, you're... you're it's fat, but it's faster. And that's the thing is like getting through those menus, the system had bogged down and... The uh, we I had an external. Do you say eSATA or SATA? No, I I would have had an answer before you before you said both of them, but now my brain is conflicted. Well, the e- I don't I don't say it at all, but the, yeah, I know what you mean. The eSATA drive that I had added to it, the external drive, started to have problems. Uh, like it, it, you know, the TiVo would boot, and then it got into a cycle where it just kept rebooting and kept rebooting. Uh, like and after like the tenth time of it rebooting, I disconnected the drive and it booted fine and told me that the drive had been disconnected and if I wanted to go forward without the drive connected, that it would whatever whatever the TiVo does to marry what's on the drive with what's on its internal drive, uh, it, it's sort of irreversible once you disconnect it and tell it to go forward. And I said okay, and it uh, lost all the content that had been shared or split across those drives. Uh, and so I plugged the drive into the, the machine, the Mac Pro that I bought from Marco has uh, an eSATA, I'll say it the other way, just so that I'll be right half the time, an eSATA uh, port on the back of it. So I connected the drive to that, booted up the machine, looked at what was on the drive, it seemed fine, it had no errors, reformatted it, uh, started trying to you know, do a, do a clone to it, because I figured that would put it through its paces using SuperDuper to clone the, the internal drive, and... Uh, halfway through, it just sort of went unresponsive. So I said, oh, it's, you know, I'm sure it's something wrong with the drive and packed up the TiVo and put it away. I think it's sad that uh, this this supposed like nice appliance device that's supposed to be easy to use is actually harder to use than if it was actually just a media PC type setup. Because if it was a PC, it would have a file system you understood. It would not be this weird proprietary non-updated, you know, Linux thing. But the, if it was just... If it was just a... Uh, a commodity product that happens to be configured to do to record television. Of course, it can't be because it's got to use this cable card crap, and you have to get all these things hoops you have to jump through to support cable card. And it, it's just sad when something that's supposed to be, I plug it in, and it just works. When it when it goes wrong, I don't think they ever should even allow this external SATA stuff. But when it goes wrong, you're stuck with a situation where you, even with extensive skills with regular computers, you can't revive the thing like you have to send away for the special boot disks if your boot disk goes bad because it's got to have the special tivo software on it i don't like it that's why i i so wish that apple would make one of these things but they don't want to and we discussed that already uh so you i think you put the siri video jason snell's uh siri demo video yeah. in the show notes yeah i watched that video uh on, on the Siri stuff, people have gotten feedback in both directions. Some people saying that they think there will be a Siri backlash and that they understand what I was saying about uh, it not being AI, but people not understanding that. Other people are saying it really is AI and you don't understand how good it is. And then people in the middle who are saying uh, it's not going to be as bad as you think. Uh, people will understand the limitations and it, there won't be it won't be a big deal. So a lot of people saw that 
Siri video that Jason Snell did where he sits there talking to the phone for 11 minutes or so and showing you what it can do. And the people who thought Siri was going to be a disaster and the people who thought Siri was going to be awesome both cite that video as proving their point. Mm-hmm. Like, See, look how great Siri is. And the same exact video, other people will say, look at this. It shows you were right about Siri. What a disaster. Uh, to clarify, I don't think Siri is going to be a disaster. I think I tried to emphasize in, in the past show, I think it will be extremely useful. I mean, ignoring the dictation thing alone, which is just a huge boon where you, if you don't want to tap something out with your fingers, you can just speak it. I mean, I, I use speech recognition on my Mac all the time, and it's great. So I would love to have it on the phone. I think it's going to be extremely efficient to be able to do stuff like do little reminders or set alarms and stuff like that without having to tap type on your phone, without having to put your greasy little fingers on there. You just have to use speech for it. What I was afraid of is that people don't understand that Siri is not human level intelligent people were confused when i said ai they're like well of course it's artificial intelligence that's what siri is look at these articles it comes from sri it's from the military research it's artificial when i when i say artificial intelligence i know i'm sort of overloading the term there i mean like human level artificial intelligence like it's another sentient being that you can talk with and that sounds silly we're like of course it's not it's not you know we don't have the technology it's it's just a computer program it's not an actual person but i'm afraid that many consumers don't understand that. And actually, it's kind of an uncanny valley type thing. You know, when it's, when it's nothing like a person, people are like, oh, I'll treat it like a machine, right? But as it approaches something that appears to be intelligent, people will make that leap and say, oh, I can, this is just a person. I can talk to whoever I want. And they will inevitably get a, to a situation where they say something that another human would understand perfectly, but Siri doesn't understand. And again, not talking about the recognition of their speech into text. I'm talking about just the semantics. Like Siri doesn't understand what they meant or Siri does something unexpected. And then that's, that's jarring to them because they thought they were talking with this little intelligent, you know, being inside the phone. And then they're yanked right out of that illusion when it does something stupid. And they say, this Siri is so stupid. And the more times it does that, they, they feel betrayed by this thing that they thought was like a little person. And so instead of being impressed as they were that, wow, this is I'm talking to my phone. It's, it's understanding me and, and, and doing what I want. They they it's like a backlash. And they say, I thought it was doing what i wanted but now i realize it's really stupid and they'll say what did someone ask him what do you think of siri and i'll say siri's so dumb i said something the other day and it t- did something totally random and i and it's so stupid that's the kind of backlash you get it's not a rational response to the quality of the product it's a, an irrational response to their expectations being raised well above where they should have been and then come crashing back down uh some other people had uh issues with my suggestion that it was like a text adventure and they said no siri understands all sorts of different syntaxes you don't have to phrase things in a certain way you can mix up your words uh, jason snell in his video does the yoda type speech to show that it still understands it when you you know i think people are perhaps underestimating text adventure games the better the better interactive fiction can understand many more complicated arrangements of sentences than the very original text adventure game so i wasn't really talking about that people are going to have to learn they have to speak in a specific syntax although they will have to understand the world of things that they can talk to Siri about is constrained and it's not a person you can't just you can't just give it arbitrary tasks like you could an assistant uh, and the worst thing about Siri though is if you had a human assistant and you and you gave some sort of a vague instruction they can ask for clarification and you can discuss it and you could feel confident that you could get them to understand what you wanted Siri lets you clarify in some ways but if you're going down the wrong path you're trying to tell ask Siri to do something that has no idea what you're talking about and it never will you can't there's no way you can clarify that So we'll see. We'll see if the, the Siri backlash manifests itself in any way or if people just are dazzled by the, the things that do work and, uh, and don't mind when it fails. 
the other thing I'll be interested in is if non-technical people find themselves carve out a little slice of functionality that they find. I know technical people will they'll they'll figure it out. They'll learn what it can do and what it can't. They'll learn which of those things is most useful to them, and they'll just sort of make a routine out of using it for a particular thing. So where people will decide, for example, I don't use Siri except when I want to set up reminders uh, because that's a much faster way to do it for me. Or I only use Siri to do reminders, to reply to short text messages, and to set alarms for when I cook my egg. Or, you know, they'll decide which things that Siri is the most efficient approach for, and they'll, they'll start using that. You know, or I'm, I'm too embarrassed to talk to my phone when I'm in any place other than in my house. So I'll do it when I'm in my house, but not when I'm out. So, you know, every, the technical people will... We'll figure it out. I'm, I wonder if the people who are not technical, who have no idea that the iPhone 4S is, even came out or is a new product or is different than anything else, they just end up getting a phone like a year from now and it's got Siri on it. After playing with it or whatever, if someone shows it to them, assuming they discover it at all, will they find themselves using it? Or will they just play with it for five minutes and decide it's not for them? Uh, that, that'll be interesting to see uh, how that catches on with the general population. It will be. Uh, people in the chat room were saying that if you, you know, we've discussed this, the Siri right now is only available on the iPhone 4S. If you try it on a 4, you just get voice control. Now, I forget if we got into the subject, but what what do you think is the reason for that? Is it a physical hardware limitation or is it something that just sort of sweetens the pot of the 4S? So I fixed it finally did a teardown on the 4S and I looked at it to see if there was anything in there that I could say was hardware that was Siri specific. Nothing jumped out at me. It doesn't mean it's not there, but all I saw was just an A5, some, you know, the memory, the the radio control chip from Qualcomm, power amplifier. Like it wasn't, there wasn't some chip that was labeled by the iFixit guys as, and here's a chip that doesn't exist in any other phones that must be there for the, uh, for Siri. Mm. There's plenty of reason to limit it to the, to only A5 devices, you know, with a certain amount of memory because I think there's some sort of memory and CPU overhead for it. But I think the better reason to limit it to the 4S is, well, here's the mysterious thing that I don't understand. So supposedly there's a server component to Siri, but I haven't seen anyone technically chop apart. Maybe they'll start like doing sit there and Sit there and phones. watch. You're talking about, like watch the traffic and see what actually gets sent. Right, right. If there is a service like I can see what gets sent over there. As, as someone in the chat room pointed out that Siri was an app that you could buy before it was a system service. So, But the fact that it is a system service means, well, it's got to be running all the time and especially for the, the speech synthesis takes up a lot of memory. Like just speaking, if you ever go to look at like the English, uh, Macintosh English Victoria, I don't know, it's not called Macintosh anymore, but the, the actual voice files or the voice files for Alex, for example, those are some pretty darn big files. Uh, and I, I imagine that it has to have some portion of those in memory to do speech, you know, when it, when it talks right, back but, to you, basically. But voice control on the iPhone 4, right? Uh, I, I'm sure that there is a limited amount of things it can say, but I mean, it it talks to you also. It does it, the same thing. Uh, say, uh, I, I don't know, but the fact that Siri is in beta makes me think anytime anything is in beta, you want it to be used by a small subset of people to get the kinks worked out of it. You don't want it to put, say there was no technical limitations. You wouldn't put Siri on every single iOS device when it's still in beta. If you could help it, you'd like it to be used by the early adopters in the best possible scenario to get the kinks worked out of it. Uh, and you know how Apple loves to not backport things, even if old older hardware could support it. It's just, just easier for them from a support perspective. This is a new feature. 
it's not unreasonable to have it only working on the new phone. The fact that it can't work on an iPad 2, maybe they think it's not as useful on an iPad 2. Or maybe, you know, the, the big test will be whether the iPad 3 has Siri support. Uh, I assume it will, just because by then the kinks will be worked out and they'll say, hey, why not? But like the iPad 2 has the same hardware specs as, as the iPhone 4S, as far as I can tell. Same amount of RAM, same A5 system on a chip. Uh, there seems to be no reason why Siri wouldn't work other than the fact that maybe they think it's weird or silly or not useful with an iPad. So we'll see what they do with the iPad 3. But no no smoking gun on hardware components that only exist in the 4S to say that all oh, they could definitely never work on the iPhone 4 or anything like that. Our first sponsor today is EasyDNS. And by the way, it's the last time that you'll hear from them uh, this year. So... I mean, act, act now, right? EasyDNS.com since 1998. They've been helping people register web addresses, transfer domains, set up email forwarding, and of course, manage their DNS. And they do this all while providing the best support in the business. Real people are there. They understand what you're trying to do and they want to help. And if you never want to talk to people like John Syracuse, then all you need to do is use their incredible web interface. You never need to talk to people. And they can even transfer your whole domain uh, and all the records and pull everything. I mean, it's, it's amazing what they've got going on. It's fully automated. So if you have domains somewhere and uh, you're thinking, oh, you know what, I'm, I'm not ready to move because I've still got six months left before it expires. I'm going to wait until the last, you know, 45 days or something. Don't, don't do that. Why? Because you can keep your existing time and the transfer will add a year on. It's like uh, an early renewal, but it changes your registrar. And uh, EasyDNS does not discard the remaining time. Some do. You can check these guys out at EasyDNS.com slash 5x5. And when you're there, if you use the coupon code 5x5, uh, you will get 10 bucks off. So go there, check it out. Thanks very much to those guys for sponsoring. They, they told me the other day they were really happy with the response. So it sounds like a lot of you guys have, have tried them out. Uh, and I really appreciate that. And they appreciate that. And uh, I think you'll appreciate the service. So thanks very much to those guys. He's a DNS. A couple of people in the chat room have uh, mentioned other uses for Siri. I've seen this mentioned many times. Siri seems like a really obvious fit for a future Apple TV. Because that, their big problem with the Apple TV is always, some, is always the interface. They give you that little five-way switch with the you know direction pad and a little button, and that, that they want it to be. But no one wants to down, 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 left, 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 select, left, select, down. No one wants to do that. And when you just want to get to something quickly, it would be great if you could turn on your Apple TV and just yell out the name of a program, and it would understand you and start playing it or ask for clarification. You know which episode, blah blah blah. The interface to television problem has not yet been solved. And every solution that I've seen tried, a lot, a lot of the better ones involve some expensive, breakable, like, a, you know, control it with your iPad, control it with your iPod Touch. Well, that's a pretty darn expensive thing for a $99 box. You're going to have a, a big, expensive LCD controller for it. And, you know, unless the interface exists solely on your iPad, you don't want to be looking up at the TV and then swiping down on something else. So voice control is a natural fit. And certainly Macs have enough power to do series, so... Again, it's a question of once Apple gets the kinks worked out of it and it's out of beta, does it appear in Mac OS X? Does it appear in the next major version? Does it appear as an update to 10.7? What would you use it for? Like, it seems it would be useful for Macs, too. If you're not, if you're in a home office or whatever, you, if you just tell your Macintosh to set up a reminder or an appointment or even just set a timer and remind you, of, you know, all those things that you can do on an iPhone, it's like, well, on the Mac, you would just click iCal and then enter the blah, blah, blah. 
it, it wouldn't it be nice to be able to use those the speech for that too? Granted, it's not as annoying to type out things and click things with a mouse and keyboard as it is to do with a tiny on-screen keyboard on an iPhone, but it's still pretty annoying. And if you could talk to it, and it would work, I think people would like to do that. What would be the the voice interface for the Apple TV? I mean, it, it, would it have a microphone and you'd say Apple TV put on? Yeah, that, that's that's part of the like the the Connect problem. Connect had the sim- for the Xbox had a similar problem. You have to put something near the television that people who are kind of far away from the television control, right? So with the Connect, you're standing a couple feet away and you're moving your body and so on and so forth. And there could be things between you and the television and you're far away and Connect has audio as well. You have to eliminate noise, figure out who the speaker is. Uh, you know, It's not the guy to the side of you who's talking that you should pay attention to is the people in front. It, these are all hard problems that may actually be much harder than the software problem of just, oh, just install the Siri software. The question of like, how do, how do we put a mic and some other sensors in there, you know, like the, like the Connect has a bunch of IR sensors in there and a mic plus maybe a camera. Like Connect is the first device that's trying to do that. Connect has several cameras and yeah. an IR sprayer and uh, IR sprayer. Yes. That sprays the whole room with IR and looks at it with two different cameras and multiple microphones to eliminate noise and stuff like that. And that's a pretty large, heavyweight, expensive solution. Is there something Apple could do with their little tiny $99 brick that would also give acceptable performance? You can't just stick a mic on the thing. At the very least, you would need two for a noise elimination, but even that might be no good. And the last thing you want is someone to be sitting in front of the television yelling. Oh, people yell at their televisions anyway, but yelling at the television and expecting. <laughs> so expecting then, it then to do does something. that mean that if you have an iPod Touch or an iPhone that you have to talk, it, you, you configure it or do jigger it around somehow that it, it, you're talking into that and it's talking to. Be, now, let me ask you this. Do these iPod Touches that you have, can they do AirPlay uh, onto the Apple TV pretty well? I don't have an Apple TV, but one of them they can, can right? Sure. Just like an iPhone, because uh, the, the the way that this is integrated now, it's just, it's just, it blew it blew my kid's mind that all of a sudden, out of the blue, there's a video of him on on the TV. Like he's seen videos of him on the iPhones, he's seen videos of him on the uh, you know on the computers, and like that's not that big of a deal to him, but. All of a sudden, seeing a video of, of him or his little baby sister on the big TV, he, he felt, I could tell, he felt like a movie star, you know? Like, he, he loved it. He was just, he was jumping up and down. He was beside himself. Uh, if they can do airplay, you would think it wouldn't be a big deal to capture some, a little bit of audio and send that to the Apple TV. Well, that gets back to the, the, having a really expensive remote, like your iPod Touch costs 200, 300 bucks and you're using it with a $99 device. The remote is more expensive and more fragile than the thing. And plus, you, you want to sell someone an Apple TV and say, here's the thing you need. You can use it, right? You don't want to say, here's an Apple TV. Oh, and by the way, if you have a $300 phone or iPod Touch, you get all these other features and you can talk to it. It's like, well, why can't I talk to the $99 one? Why can't you build that in or whatever? Having Having some other thing that is also expensive or that is an ex- accessory that not everyone will have is a problem for the simplicity of the product. Uh, I don't I, I think these are technical barriers are surmountable. I'm just not sure Apple thinks it's going to be ready for prime time. Maybe they're playing with it, but you know Apple, they don't like to release. They wouldn't just tack on a couple of mics and install Siri on it because, the, because it will run and say, hey, Apple TV 3, now with Siri, and it should kind of work, but if it doesn't, just use the remote. They would want to do it like they do with the phone because the phone, you know, the iPhone 4S, it's fast, it's got enough memory, you talk right into it, you don't put the iPhone on the other side of the room and sit down on the couch and try to use Siri, that's not going to work, you know, it's right there, it's an ideal situation. So, 
I, I don't know. I th- everyone thinks speech would be great for the Apple TV. I'm just not sure Apple will agree for a generation or two of the of the device. And as I said before, I'm probably going to get an Apple TV 3, assuming it still has no fan and is nice and everything. I, what I really like is an, is an RF remote or a Bluetooth remote or something other than IR. Because they make this little black box that would be great to hide somewhere, but you got to have the IR sensor poking out. What else you got? This is all still follow-up, really. Our main topic today, I, I thought, well, in our remaining time, I thought I would talk about Dart. Do you know about Dart? Dart is this brand new uh, JavaScript infrastructure platform library that uh, Google has just announced and released into the world. And they, well, I say just, in internet time, it was like 10 years ago, but I think it was last week. Yeah, we didn't, we didn't get a chance to talk about it because there were other things going on, but I figure it's worth uh, discussing. So uh, currently, or in the past, Google has done a couple of weird things to write their web applications. Uh, they had uh, They have an in-house toolkit that's also available to the public, I believe, where you write your applications using Java, like actual Java, and they have a compiler that will translate that to JavaScript so it can run in the browser. And so they get to use all the tools that have been built up around Java and write their applications in that language and the language they like better, and then it translates it to you know, compressed, minified, obfuscated uh, JavaScript that you know, runs their application. I don't know if Gmail does this. Gmail might use something slightly different, but they have, they have GWT, which is their Google Web Toolkit, which is this Java thing, and they have similar tools that uh, they use in-house. So if you ever look at the source code for uh, Gmail, the Gmail web page, it's just a mess, and you're like, no human wrote this. It's very similar to Google+. Plus. It's clear <laughs> that they're using tools that produce this stuff. Now, Dart looks like another crack at the same type of problem. They don't they don't want to write the application using JavaScript. They want to write it in what they think is a better language with better tooling. And then uh, in the case of Dart, this internal memo that leaked a while back was uh, internal Google memo was saying that what, what they want is they want JavaScript to be a better language, but they don't feel like they can make JavaScript a better language because they don't have control over the process and because they think that you can't evolve the language as it exists today into one that they find acceptable. So what they're going to try to do is make a new language and they'll make their new language compiled to JavaScript so that it will run on other browsers. But what they plan to do is on their browser, on Google Chrome, make Dart run natively. So they're going to try to write their applications in Dart, like you know their, their web applications that Google uses, encourage other people to write their applications in Dart and say, hey, use Dart, it's a better language. You can still target every browser because we will compile the Dart into JavaScript so it will run on other browsers. But if you run your, if someone runs your application using Chrome, it will eventually. I don't think they have the native VM out yet, but it will eventually have a native VM for Dart that'll, you know, be faster, lower memory use, have better features, all all the things they want out of JavaScript that they can't, they think they can't get. So the first, when this internal memo leaked and people didn't really know about Dart, there was a big hubbub about, you know, you're trying to fork the web. Uh, the web is supposed to be the platform without a vendor. It's an open platform. We don't want anyone controlling the web, even if it's Google, someone we may or may not like. But you know, it's not supposed. No vendor is supposed to control the web. It's supposed to be open. So we don't like the idea of one company making a new language and saying we're going to replace JavaScript, which has been this you know this great boon to the web and web applications because it's a standards body controls it and it just you know everyone supports it and you could target target any web browser with it. 
and now Google wants to make their own thing. We don't like that. We don't like, you know, imagine if Apple had done this in the old days. So, oh, there goes Apple again, making their proprietary stuff. They can't use open standards. They have to have their own thing. Oh, so there was a lot of backlash from that. And then I think a couple of days ago, they released the specs for the language and said, okay, well, here, well, that thing we were talking about a while back where everyone was getting angry, well, here's the actual language. So people could finally take a look at the language and start talking about it in isolation, ignoring the fact of whether it's a good idea to try to replace JavaScript or control the web and stuff like that. What, what is the language like? Is the language any good? Uh, I've tried to look at as much as I can about the language, but I haven't actually used it to do anything, so I can't say too much about it except to link to other people's opinions. So in the show notes, I put one person's uh, analysis of the language. It happens to be a, a Perl person because I tend to travel in those circles, and I also trust Perl people's views on languages simply because, as I've said in previous programs, I think especially the people involved in Perl 6 are on, I don't know if we can say the cutting edge, but they're, they're on sort of the bleeding edge. Of so wait, you're saying Perl developers are on, on Perl, the Perl cutting 6, edge of something. Perl 6 developers in particular are on the bleeding edge of language design. because huh. And they, they, they have the luxury of being that way because they don't, they don't have a, a language that is in use by thousands of people. And it's kind of, it's kind of like a research project, you know. I don't want to get in trouble with the Perl 6 people. I said, there's no implementation. There is. You can download it, but it's not complete. It's not, you know, is it ready for production? What does that even mean? I don't want to even get into that debate. But the point is Perl 6 has lots of interesting and advanced features that other languages have not caught up with. Because the languages that have to exist in the real world, most of the ones we're using today were invented a long, long time ago. Like JavaScript is from the 90s. So that's, that's a relatively young language, but it's still a decade or more old, right? Uh, and it was created kind of on a whim by a guy who, I don't know how many other languages was it, Brendan Eich, Brandon Eich, someone in, in the chat room will correct me, but the creator of JavaScript was not someone who had who was a language designer by trade and had created tons of languages, I don't think. You know, it's kind of it's just kind of accidental. It's like, well, that's the one that got popular, shipped in Netscape Navigator, it has Java in the name because Java was popular back then. It's like it's this weird, tortured history. And um, we talked about this in the, in the previous programming shows. Like the languages that are popular are not popular because of the quality of the language, they're popular for reasons that are that are unrelated to the quality of the language, but turn out to be much more important in terms of adoption. You know, developer tools, the platform it was built on, what you could use this language for, accidents of history, right place, right time. Uh, someone in the chat room is saying JavaScript was his first try, and it was Brendan Eich. Uh, so Google has not been afraid to make new languages. They made that new Go language because they thought C was a little clunky, and if they just shaved off a couple of the sharp edges of C, it could be really cool and add some concurrency and, and make a nicer to program in, but they're content to sort of use that in-house all right, so with Dart, uh, this this uh, thing I linked to from a Perl guy, he's he's comparing it to anytime a new language comes out. Understandably, the, a Perl six guy or someone familiar with like the cutting edge of languages is going to say, "All right, so this is a language supported by a big company. If anybody has the clout to make something successful, or to at least make a good environment with good tools and all that stuff, it's a big company like Google, right? So let's see if this language is cool and has all the cool stuff that I like. That you know, for example, some cool stuff from Perl six that." Is not going anywhere in Perl 6, it seems like right now, but it would be great if Google got behind a similar language. And people who are into other languages said, look at it the same way. People who are into Haskell or other functional programming languages or uh, Clojure or you know any of these new modern languages that have things that make language nerds excited. When, when those people look at Dart, what they see is not something that's very exciting to them. The functional programming people uh, and the and the mathematicians don't like it because it doesn't push all their buttons about 
provable correctness with the type system and all sorts of other mathematical concepts that they think are essential for a good programming language that Dart decides is not essential. And they and Dart comes right out and says, we, we didn't do those things. We don't think it's important to have that kind of a type system. Sorry. Uh, and the Perl 6 people look at it and say, well, it's, it's class-based and uses interfaces just like Java. And didn't we all learn that interfaces are kind of lame and, you know, class-based OO is not great? And, you know, Perl 6 is going to say, why don't you use roles? Everyone knows about roles and, and, and traits and stuff I think we've talked about in previous shows. They're much better than classes and interface. Uh, then the type system, even, even the Perl 6 people come down on that. They say, well, you've got this typing where it's like optional typing. Which on its surface looks a lot like what Perl 6 wants to do. What Perl 6 wants to do is have optional types for things, like have an actual type system, but it's optional. You can just say, oh, it's just a variable and Perl will figure it out. And the whole point of the types in Perl 6, or one of the big points, one of the parts that I got ex- most excited about personally about types in Perl 6, was that it was supposed to give the language enough information to potentially do optimizations. So if you say something is an integer, it can maybe use a native integer for that internally and not have to treat it like a big magic variable that could be a number, could be a string, could be any of the other things. Uh, but in Dart, the types are really optional in that they basically don't matter. It's just kind of like a form of documentation. Uh, the, the URL that I linked to with the guy uh, criticizing Dart calls it feeble typing. Instead, instead of weak typing or strong typing or static typing or dynamic typing, it's feeble typing. It's just barely there. It's almost just like a form of execution, uh, form of execution, form of documentation. Uh, and they have a, a static type checker that you can run on it, but it doesn't actually cause your program not to be compiled if you have a type error. It's just kind of like a helpful aid. Uh, and they, they, the Dart, Google presents Dart is like, oh, you can start out with like a simple program where you don't care about types and you just prototype it, but then as it becomes a serious application, of course, you add types. And then our static checker will check that your types are correct and so on and so forth, but in the end, it's going to compile to JavaScript, which has no concept of types like that, uh, and it's not, you know, so it, do, it, doesn't, it doesn't make anybody happy. It doesn't make the dynamic programming people happy because even they think optional types should be more like Perl 6. And it doesn't make the functional programming or statically type people happy because, it, because it's not the bondage and discipline that they want and it's not functionally pure and provably correct and, you know, like the Haskell people and everything want. Uh, one, one, of the, one of the funnier things that he pointed out about it, which I wouldn't have picked up on my own, but he did, is that, uh, so you, you've been a programmer for a while, right? I guess. I mean, started when I was a little kid. So Did when you want to do, life. want to do a, uh, an infinite loop, you want to write an infinite loop that you're going to break out of internally on some condition. Uh, right. Uh, what what construct do you use for that? An infinite loop. You would use. I mean, something that's going to check for something and then bust out of it. You would use yeah, a while, like, maybe yeah. a while. Right. And well, what would you put in the conditional for the while? If you wanted it to never break out. Yeah. Well, you're going to break yeah, out while true, like while false. It's usually false. Depends on language. This is no, well, a quiz. Well, yeah, I, I'm just. Well, this is check, a, a, you check a thing, for the condition that that's up, you, not going to be true anymore, and then you bust out of it. No, but like, so you're going to write an outer loop that's infinite, and then inside it, you're going to say if some condition, blah blah blah, you're going to break out of the loop. Like, so, yeah. So, so the loop, but the loop itself, when you have to write a loop that gets entered on the first try, and unless there's some flow control inside inside the loop, how will it break out? So people, you said like a while. People in the chat room saying a while true or while one, right? And then inside you break out of it, right? And the if you are a programming stickler, nerd, obsessive compulsive, that would be me, early on in your programming career, you would have run across people who said, Oh, actually, and this is like C in particular, but lots of languages borrow from C. Oh, don't don't do while one. Instead do four open parens, semicolon, semicolon, close parens. Have you seen that construct before? 
right? And I'll say that's better because that you know we don't want magic numbers in our code. We don't want that while one there, right? Because what if what if someday one isn't true anymore, right? Which sounds ridiculous, but if you're obsessive and a nerd, you say, yeah, you know what? Four semicolon semicolon actually is cleaner because it doesn't require any magic numbers and it's a clean construct and it's kind of idiomatic and I like idioms in programming languages. So for years I've been doing in in even I think I've even done it in Perl, but you know in C based languages and stuff doing for an empty four instead of while one, just because it pushes my anal retentive buttons about cleanliness and semantics and everything. But if anyone challenges me on that, I'm going to go, they're going to say, what do you mean if one isn't false? That's so stupid. Obviously, one, you're like, yeah, they're not going to change the language so that one is false while one, but then suddenly your program breaks because one is false. It's stupid, right? Well, in Dart, the only value that, that is true in a Boolean sense is the they have a special keyword true, the bo- literal Boolean true. Everything else is false, including one. So if you do if one or while one, the block of that will not execute because one is not true. All right. So this this is like a weird vindication of the the anal retentive practice of using an empty for loop or something as your conditional because here's a language where literally while one you won't enter that loop or mm. if one you will not, you will not execute that conditional which is just kind of perverse. Yeah. They have other weird stuff going on in language too where they have operator overloading but not type coercion overloading. So you can have situations where this is in the article too, where you can have if a equals equals a have that condition be false because there's no type coercion and and someone overrode that operator. Mm. It, lots of weird stuff that has to it has to do with the fact that it has to compile the JavaScript, I assume. But the, the bottom line on, on Dart as a language is that I don't think many people are getting excited about Dart, the language itself. If you said, if you just said, ignore, you know, this coming out of nowhere, here's a new language, and I call it Dart, people would say, this is a cruddy language. It takes some of the things I hate about Java and some of the things I hate about C and C++ and mushes them into this weird Frankenstein beast, and I don't understand why you have these crazy typing rules, and they don't make any sense to me, and I, I don't like your, you know, nobody is excited about this language. The only thing that's excited about it is its intended usage, like, Oh, so I see you're going to replace JavaScript with this and you, you're going to make better tools for this and this could be potentially faster than JavaScript and it'll be easier to write in than JavaScript for these reasons and you can make serious applications with it because it has these types and all this other stuff. Maybe then you could get excited about it. Like, I think the people who are most excited about it obviously is Google because they are already writing web applications using a language other than JavaScript and then targeting JavaScript. And they would like to get rid of that targeting JavaScript part, at least on their own browsers. So they want to write in a language that... that it's close enough to JavaScript that it can produce JavaScript and not be horrendously inefficient, but eventually will run natively in the browser that they own because they'll build in a, a Dart VM. And I think the excitement level for Dart takes a huge drop as soon as you leave Google. Because for other people, they're like, well, I'm not excited about... Then you have to look at the big picture. I'm not really excited about Google making the new language for the web and controlling it. And I'm also not really excited about Dart the language. That doesn't look that interesting. Uh, and then one of the other links I have in the show notes is someone did Hello World in Dart which you have to write a main function and then print hello world. It's all very Java-like. Yeah, very Java. Well, that, that's more like C-like. At least you don't have to make a class, I don't think. That would be Java-like. Uh, but someone compiled that to JavaScript and said, so what does hello world look like when you compile the JavaScript? And the output, I mean, this is, this is kind of silly because it's the worst case scenario. So you, you've made a tiny little snippet of code, you know, print hello world. But to target JavaScript, the Dart compiler has to build this entire world up. They build the world of Dart and then execute your little whole world in it. So the JavaScript it produces is this huge pages upon pages of boilerplate <laughs> and stuff that's implementing the language just for your hello world. So the overhead for using Dart and targeting JavaScript is like, oh, Dart's great, and hey, it'll just produce JavaScript if you want to target other browsers. Well, there's a minimum threshold of application size that you have to pass 
before it makes sense to use Dart and target JavaScript because mm-hmm. you're not going to do it on a web page that previously had you know ten lines of jQuery and so granted jQuery is huge too right but presumably if you use Google's uh, URLs for that it might already be cached in the client. Um, but it seems like Dart is definitely targeting the kind of web applications that Google writes. Big applications. It's not just like a little web page with something that animates. It's like Gmail or Google Docs or something like that. So to the extent that there are other companies out there that A, write big, humongous web applications like Google does, and B, don't mind writing them on top of a technology controlled by someone who could potentially be a competitor, then uh, and C, don't mind not being excited by the language itself. That is, I guess, the target market for Dart. So I expect Dart not to ever replace JavaScript as the dominant language and probably not to be used by many people outside Google. And I think that's fine because Google should be making cool internal tools and publishing them in the hopes that, hey, if other people like it, maybe it'll help them make them better. So, uh, And I'm all for a replacement for JavaScript. Uh, I'm just not excited about this replacement for JavaScript and I'm not excited about the way Google's, the Google's apparent motivation and goals for replacing JavaScript in this way. Like, it seems like they're using it to rest control. If you, if you read that, that memo about Dart that's also linked from one of the links in the show notes about Dart, you can see it's kind of shady. It's like, how can we take control of the web sort of <laughs> through a side door by replacing <laughs> JavaScript and not participating in that process and we just want to do our own thing and then seed it out to the world because now we control a browser and we can build this languages and if we make it really fast then everyone will just have to use it because it'll be so much better. I don't you know. So. Not excited about Dart. Not, not going to be using it anytime soon. I don't know. It might be fun to play with, but I have dim hopes for it. I'm, the most thing I'm disappointed is if Dart was a really cool language, then it could be like, yeah, it's kind of evil. looks like they're forking the web and blah, blah, blah. But wow, what a cool language. You'd be excited about it from that perspective, right? It's just not exciting to me. It seems it seems like something that would only be exciting to people who really love Java and C++. And Google has tons of people who love Java and C++. But that's not me. Okay. Yeah, we don't have anything else that's short enough to fit. We're at the one hour mark here. Unless you have any anything that you want to bring up. I do. A second uh, sponsor should do them. That's a good idea. You know, uh, you know this. Ars Technica. Had some coverage, 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 either way works, of uh, the iPhone 4S event. But they, they went down like so many other places went down. Did you know about that? I did. I had all the live streams open. Yeah, they had, they had some problems. I forget who they were using this year. But it was a different provider than last year. They, they keep changing providers, but nothing seems to help. I'll tell you who they should use. They should use Rackspace Cloud. That's who LiveGadget.com uh, used. And they did not go down. And uh, most people, they already know how simple the Rackspace cloud is to use to host their websites and applications. And what people always come back to, what they always talk about is a fanatical support. And now you can, you can see this in real time that the, uh, the live.gadget.com blog stayed up. And my understanding is uh, that they, they didn't have to do anything crazy to, to make that happen. They, they just did whatever it was that they, they normally do. And uh, the site uh, responded. The thing stayed up and, uh, and, and kept running. It's pretty incredible. It's pretty cool when you think about it. So if you have a site that doesn't get a lot of traffic, put it there. And then the day that it does, guess what? You'll survive. You'll be just fine. You won't have to freak out. You won't have to worry. I know a lot of app developers that run 
database backends that uh, when they release a brand new version for iOS 5, the new phones come out, all of a sudden they have tons and tons and tons of new year- users, their service goes down and they freak out about it. And they have to go and spin up new servers and configure things and pull their hair out for a while. Well, if they'd hosted it on the Rackspace cloud, they wouldn't have that problem. So now you can go to uh, rackspace.com slash 5 by 5 and uh, you can learn all about the all about this. There's a special page there just for you guys. And uh, you'll go there and it will support the show. And uh, maybe you can sign up and try out something cool. Rackspace.com slash 5 by 5 Great place to host stuff. You know, speaking of server-side stuff, this brings up another point about Siri. Uh, this was a point that... Who made this point? I think it was an unofficial Apple weblog. No, that wasn't it. Maybe it was Asimco. I don't remember where I saw this. I just have the notes here. I don't have the source. But uh, I was talking about Siri and Silk. So Silk was that Amazon thing that we talked about where your your Amazon Fire tablet will connect to Amazon servers and then Amazon servers will connect to the web for you through a much larger connection. And so your device will only have to have one connection and to Amazon servers and all the traffic will go over that instead of having to make multiple TCP connections and bring them up and tear them down and do all sorts of stuff over the cell network. They'll just make one efficient connection over the cell network and go through this proxy that will compress things for you and interleave all the traffic and just you know generally provide a nicer web experience as being in between so uh that was an example of uh, and so amazon's doing that and amazon is a big server side company amazon stores are, are built on you know, this huge you know infrastructure for the, the needs around amazon.com to sell stuff and they also have branched out in recent years to providing web services where there's s3 storage service and ec2 elastic compute cloud where you can provision uh, computing hardware dynamically as your load increases, sort of like a Raspberry. So that's that that type of model. So Amazon is a server side company that is now getting into the device business with the Kindles, with the with the Fire and stuff like that. Uh, and Silk, again, this is hard to talk about without knowing what the heck the server component of or not Silk Siri. Hard to talk about without knowing what the server component of Siri is. But Apple is a device company that certainly with iCloud and even a little bit with Siri seems to be getting into the server side business. Uh, so those two, Amazon and Apple, seem to be on a collision course in that respect where it used to be Amazon was content to be server-side and Apple made devices and everyone was happy. But now both people are moving heavily into their the opposing company's uh, stronghold. Uh, so we'll see who does better. Is Amazon doing better entering the device business than Apple is entering the cloud business? We should talk about iCloud a little bit, speaking of that stuff. Uh, I was talking about on Twitter a while back, what, what is the iCloud launch going to be like? Do people think it's going to be successful? Do people think it's going to be like a mobile me-scale disaster? Is, is nothing going to work? <laughs> or is everything going to work? Uh, you, you've got iOS 5 on your devices now, right? Yes, sir. And did you sign up for iCloud and do all that stuff? Yes, sir. And how, so how, what grade would you give it so far? Uh, I, am I grading how it worked and what the sign-up process was like? Or am I, am I grading what i think of the feature set i mean no not not the feature set ignore the feature set just say like there is a given feature set that apple said this is what it's supposed to do how well does it perform were the servers down were they slow were you not able to do things just like server side component of reliability not talking about the features themselves it's perfect everything's been perfect uh you know everything that i've uh everything i've tried worked just fine servers were fast um everything just everything just works Everything works the way you wanted to work. I mean, no no problems. Even even downloading uh, downloading the updates and everything here for you, I understand for you it was not fast, but here it was uh, very very fast download and the install worked just fine. The phones did. You know, I've had I've actually had trouble 
updating the phone, not bad trouble, but like, you know, it would, it would have a failed install that you would need to reboot it and do, you know, try again. None, none of that, none of that this time, everything just worked and, uh, it synced everything up really, really well. It handled the merging of, uh, of the different, you know, different address books in different places has worked really well. Everything was just great. And then, uh, you download, you download content, you buy it in one place, it shows up in the other place. I've got, we have an iMac that is dedicated just, just for us to sync up devices with, and it has the music and video library on it. And that's all, all we do with it. And that way it's always available. And, the uh, the Apple TVs and everything else can get to it, and it just sort of sits there and is the the media machine. And uh, you know, it, it it's great because it it automatically gets like I, I bought as a test. I bought something on the uh, on with my iPhone. It was a song or something. I can't remember what it was. Maybe maybe even some of the apps. And they just they just later on they just showed up on the machine. It was great. Works works beautifully, perfect, no problems. So I was pretty desperate to get iOS five on my devices simply because I wanted to stop connecting them with the USB cable to a computer with iTunes because I've had a lot of problems with syncing. You mentioned like sometimes you can try to update the OS, it fails, and you got to do it again. Well, my wife's iPad has had this thing where you plug it in, and as soon as you plug it in, it immediately says, "All right, backing up," and then it sits in that backing up phase like forever, like way longer than you think it should. And step one of five, backing up, and it just sits there. So if you look at the console log, I was seeing all these USB mucks, uh, error messages, and CF network, negative one, all sorts of scary-looking error messages, and it would just never terminate. And you're like, obviously, to update it to the next OS, you have to connect it to it. I was just like, this is going to be the last time that I connect this <laughs> iPad to this computer because I'm sick of it. Like, it shouldn't take this long. I don't know what it's doing. It seems to be having some sort of problem. I don't, and, and the worst thing is if you give up and, like, yank it out and disconnect it, then forever, it's like, I uh, can't sync because the sync process is already going on. And if you restart your computer, it doesn't help because it's like a process on the iPad. So you got to like hard reset the iPad and let it reboot and then reboot your computer and then try it again and think of, decide how long you're going to wait. So I really wanted to get away from that because connecting through USB has not been fun for me with a, a couple of different devices. But her iPad has been the worst for some unknown reason. So I wanted to get iCloud on there. Uh, the, the first problem I had, this is kind of just a launch day thing, but like, yeah, the downloads are really slow. And it's not because my connection is like when when everything was going slow, like maybe my ISP is having a problem. So I went to these speed test websites and my speed was just it would say you know, 30 megabits down. No problem here. I'm 20 something up. Your, your connection is fine. While the download is going, it was trickling along. So it took four and a half hours to like download all the updates. Uh, but then once the updates were downloaded, as soon as I plugged the iPad in, it started to update the iPad instead of trying to back it up first. Uh, or maybe it was using a different backup. It was like a different dialog box. It was like that modal dialog box that pops up in front of iTunes. I don't, I don't know. I don't want to deal with iTunes anymore. Uh, but it did eventually get updated and signed in with her iCloud ID. Uh, that whole business about what the which Apple IDs you can use for which things, kind of confusing, but I'm also kind of glad that they made it as flexible as it is because we have a shared Apple ID that we use for all our purchases. So when I buy something, she can use on her devices and so on. But for iCloud, you really want to have separate things for each person. Otherwise, her contacts will be mixing with mine and all this other stuff, right? So you can have a separate Apple ID that you use to buy apps, and you just go to the store preferences and enter that. That can be different than the Apple ID that you use. I don't know what you'd call it, like your device Apple ID, the one yeah. you use to sort of initialize the device. That's that's just you. That's you. You know, your your entity is that Apple ID, but in the store you can still use another one. So for the things that that I've done so far, she doesn't use 
uh, iCloud Mail, but she does. We did use it for the contacts and everything. Uh, I turned it on the backup thing. As soon as I put that slider, you know, use iCloud for backups, it immediately says there's not enough room. Would you like to buy more storage? I don't know if it prompted yeah, me to instant, buy more, but instant, yeah, uh, because you get five gigs free, and she had more than that. I looked at what it was. It was like six gigs of magazines. Um, so you, it's nice that you can just turn those off on a per app basis. Like, don't back up the magazines, right. but do those stuff, right? So I had a pretty good experience, aside from the really slow downloads, which is like not. That was like a one like, day, one time. Really, it's like it's like the the CDN was having problems. I don't know. It could have just been a bandwidth thing. You know, whatever. whatever. That's not really the iCloud service as much as their usual software update download things, where their pipes could have been filled, their network pipes could have been filled with all the people updating. But using the service, I didn't really get any error messages. It wasn't slow. I did a couple of things to see if it was doing what it's supposed to be doing, and it seemed like it was. Uh, I was never prompted to uh, resolve any sync conflicts. It didn't duplicate all the contacts. So I, I pretty much give it a thumbs up. So I asked on Twitter. I think I mentioned on Twitter the next day that, you know, that went pretty well. Like, it's not, not a mobile me type disaster. And then immediately people replied to me and said, yeah, well, I guess you're not using the mail because the mail thing isn't working. So apparently during the day yesterday... People couldn't connect to their the, to get their mail. They would reject their password. Some people had debugged it further and said that a particular IMAP server, Apple's IMAP server, wasn't responding. And they have a whole bunch of them. It's some big long name.apple.com. So I would give it. I don't know how I would grade it. Certainly, it's not a mobile me level disaster. Uh, I'd say it probably went as smoothly as could be expected given Apple's past history. Like, if there were zero problems, I would have been amazed. You expect some sort of growing pains and little things like that, and there were, but they seem to be transient and relatively minor. There's still people saying that they can't convert their mobile me ID to a to an iCloud account because that whole service has been shut off due to overwhelming demand or whatever. I don't know. I'm sure they have some sort of server-side problem they're trying to deal with. So there are bumps, but I give it a pretty good grade so far. I still remain cautiously optimistic uh, about iCloud. Uh the, the one thing I want to talk about too is the Apple ID situation because I think people may be confused by this. I should put this in the show notes. There was a, a couple of good articles in MacWorld explaining what the deal is. Maybe, maybe it's just us. Maybe no one else has multiple Apple IDs, but I have multiple Apple IDs. And my wife has multiple Apple IDs, and it gets confusing. Uh, the, the The only dangerous situation you have to worry about is if you have Mobile Me and you use Mobile Me for syncing, like you sync your keychains, you use your Jimbo to do Mobile Me syncing and stuff like that. Do not convert that Mobile Me. ID to an iCloud ID. At least because until you're sure that every app that you use is is working and that you don't need to pass those keychains and things around. Right. So you're, you're going to be giving up the ability to do, that's my understanding, like I've, I've tried to read up on this or whatever, my understanding is if I was to convert my MobileMe Apple ID to iCloud, my Yojimbo items would not be able to sync between computers anymore. Right. For example, now that doesn't mean they'd be blown away or they'd be deleted or right. anything. It just means the syncing part would go away. Right. Uh, and as much as I complain about mold me, I do use that syncing. I use the keychain syncing between machines. I use the Yojimbo syncing between machines. Uh, and I like the flexibility. Like, for example, I sync my keychain between all my home Macs, but I sync my Yojimbo between all my home Macs and my work Mac just so I can have that information with me. Now, there are work, there are workarounds for this. Yeah. So you can put it in Dropbox and right. all sorts of other things. Uh, but the Yojimbo developers, for example, are, are, are going to update for iCloud. They're just not done with it yet. So their deadline sure. is whatever it is, June 2012 or something like that, when MobileMe will be shut off for good. Before that time, if you have an application that uses MobileMe syncing, you have to hope that the developer of that application releases a new version that uses iCloud before that date, so then you can switch it over. Right. Uh, but another thing you can do 
is what I may end up doing, which is just make yourself a new Apple ID and use that as your new iCloud. I actually have a new iCloud ID that I used when I was testing iCloud for my line review. I actually ended up not talking about iCloud in the line review just because it was too young and it, I didn't really know what it was going to be like. It's a good thing I didn't talk about it because all of the features that I saw in the line betas, it, it's very different now. The interface is very different to how you do stuff. And they hadn't decided on all the rules with the Apple IDs and stuff. There were rumors about merging Apple IDs, which you still can't do. Uh, but anyway, the safest thing is probably make yourself a new Apple ID. You can use anything you want. My wife's Apple ID doesn't use a me.com email address. You can use anything for your Apple ID. I, sure. I actually have Apple IDs from the old days when they didn't even have to be email addresses, which causes some problems. Uh, but make yourself a new Apple ID. Make it, you know, blah, blah, blah at me.com. You can get it for free and use that. And if you have your mobile me ID, just keep that one at your old, you know, whatever at mac.com address or whatever that Apple ID was. Uh, so it is confusing, but it is also flexible. The, the, the worst thing, the only thing you can do really badly is to rush into it and just say, I'm just going to convert everything to iCloud and then be surprised by the results. So I will add this uh, great Macworld article that tries to explain all the different op- options and things you can do with Apple IDs. I'll put that in the show notes. Now, I have, I have a question for you that's somewhat related to this. So as you know, I have an iPhone 4. And the 4 I'm getting a 4S. Any second now. Oh, it could be. Do, do you recommend treating these essentially as, a, like, should I treat this as an entirely new device or should I restore it from a backup of my existing iPhone 4? In other words, when I start using this thing, I, I, can, I can sign in with my iCloud account, no problem. And in theory, it's a new device, but it should start, it should pull in everything that I might need from iCloud. That would be great. But... You know, should I use it as a standalone device and essentially leave the four sitting there as as its own device or separate, or should I restore the new one from a backup, which would bring along all of the pictures and video and everything else that I've got going? Yeah, that's kind of weird. Like with the with the photo stream stuff, you know, photo stream only works for stuff that you create after you have photo stream enabled and installed. So, uh, like you said, all all of your pictures that are on your iPhone four, if you were to get your four S and turn it on and turn on iCloud. You, you expect, oh, it's going to sync everything, but it's not going to sync, my understanding at least, is it's not going to sync the pic- any pictures that were taken on your iPhone 4 before you upgraded to iOS 5, right? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure of that answer, but I think, I think that's right. But even, even putting that aside, you know, I mean, I've, what if, what if uh, I had a, a chat where somebody said, oh, call me at this number today at, at 2 p.m., and the only place that I have that is in one of the chats uh, that I would need to go back to to look to call oh, the person. Because that's the application data? That's Be- also confusing to me, too. Like, Is that coming so across? If, if you back up to iCloud, do you have your iPhone 4 backing up to iCloud or no? Yes. And did you pay for the extra storage so you actually fit it? Didn't need it. That's confusing to me, too, because I know I have tons of stuff on like my iPod Touch, for example, you know, 20 gigs of music, but that music is not getting backed up to the iCloud backup because I didn't purchase it from the iTunes Music Store. Hmm. Right? So... I'm wary of iCloud backup because I'm not sure what it's backing up. It's right, obviously I, not backing up my music. So what if my house burns down? I say, oh, I can just get a new iPhone and enter my iCloud ID and all my stuff will be there. Well, my music won't because it burned down with my house, right? Yeah, so I'm looking at iCloud and I have, I have everything turned on except right now the photo stream. Everything else is, is turned on. And when I go to storage and backup, it says that I'm, I, have, I have 5 gigs and I have 820 megs available. So I'm, I'm close 
So now you mentioned about the phone number. Like, say you had that in a chat session from a Verbs chat log, and you wanted to go find it. Like, it's not in your contacts, is what you're saying, because your contacts will sync. Uh, I'm saying, or or let's say that I'm meeting somebody for lunch, and they said, "Here's the address of the place that we're going," and I only have that in an iMessage, and it's only on this phone. That's right, not. Now, that's not getting backed up, right? I don't. Well, I don't. I assume application data is backed up. So I'm going to go back to the the Verbs thing. So you're using Verbs, and you've got IM transcripts. I don't even know if Verbs has IM transcripts, although I do own Verbs. Right. Don't use it that much, but that would be application data that's associated with that thing. So when you when you sync your thing and it puts verbs on your new phone, I assume it would also put the contents of the little buried documents folder inside the verbs application home directory on your new on your new phone as well. Like I'm assuming it's bringing the application data. That's a whole other topic that I actually wanted to talk about, but I'll let Marco do it on his show. Did you read Marco's post about application data versus caches and all that stuff? I, I did. Yeah, uh, the cleaning behavior of uh, of iOS five. Yeah, so I'm going to leave that to him because that's his thing. But that was a great article, um, and you should definitely talk about that. Uh, and, it's inter- and it's related to this because he's talking about, well, what things get backed up and what things don't. Well, yeah. I assume the things that are user-created application data also get sent to your other device if you take a new iPhone out of the box and turn it on and sync it with iCloud. So, uh, so you're saying that if I have two iPhones, and I'll know the answer to this later today, but you're saying if I have two iPhones and I sync both of them with iCloud that even something like a previous chat or something like that will will get synced. If if the application has been built that way, you're saying it will get synced. Yeah, and, and any any user-created content is going to definitely be in a folder. It's definitely getting backed up in your other phone, and I assume it will be copied to your new phone. If it isn't, that's kind of I'm cruddy, to try that's this. like, oh, if I drop my phone in the ocean, when I get a new phone, I just enter my iCloud ID and all my stuff is back. Well, mm-hmm. we know that's not true for music that you didn't buy in the iTunes Music Store and videos that you ripped yourself and put on there and stuff like that. But is it also not true for even for application data? Like, is it just going to install the Verbs application from the App Store and it'll just be completely clean and empty? I assume it's going to sync the stuff from iCloud. So I would, when you get your 4S, I would try that experiment. Like, find some piece of data or create a piece of data. Like, you know, create a sticky note. Well, maybe notes don't count because they're specially treated. But pick some third-party application and make something you know is user-generated content, like a little note or I don't know, I can't think of a simple note also as a server-side component. I'm trying to think of something where you know there's no server-side component doing this stuff for you. Put, make some data in the application, and then when you get your 4S, sign in with your iCloud ID and see if it shows up there. So that'll be an interesting experiment. Now, as for whether you, whether you should, you know, after you run this experiment, whether you should actually hook it up to your to iTunes and do a restore from your other one, that's what I would do just because I want all my stuff. You want all your stuff. Yeah, I want everything there. And I'm, I'm perfectly happy to do that, have it make a big giant mess, and then spend, you know, 15, 20 minutes cleaning up. Or, okay, I don't need that application. Let me rearrange these, you know. Uh, iOS 5 actually was pretty nice about this when it added those applications. It added, uh, what, Newsstand and uh, uh, the Message application and Reminders app. It didn't shift all of my icons over by three, which would have driven me crazy. It just made, like, a new screen. And so here are these lonely, lonely three icons on a new page, too. And then the rest of my pages were left pretty much intact. So I'm, I'm all in favor of that. But it does require some cleanup after the fact. So that's what I would do if I was you. But you, on the other hand, are the... I want a clean install. I want it to be custom. I want it to be stock, just, you know, minimal stuff. on. That's how you are on your Mac. So you may be inclined to do that on your phone, too, just to get a, to get a fresh start. That's kind of what I'm thinking. Like, mainly what I have on this phone that I would, that I would want somewhere else, uh, to be honest, it, it, it's, it's just the, the contact data. You know, it really isn't anything beyond that. So, I mean, the pictures and stuff, I've got those all loaded off. But I'm bad. You know what I'm bad about? You probably don't have this problem because you don't own you don't own an iOS device. 
is I'll take pictures and videos and stuff and uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll offload them to the computer, but I typically don't always delete them from the phone. So then eventually, I, uh, you know, like some half blurry picture of, you know, my kid running through the room from six months ago that I should have deleted and just never got around to. I'm sure you don't have that problem. No, we don't. Well, all we have is the iPod touch with the crappy camera. So we try not to take pictures with that because they're so low quality. So yeah, yeah we're not, we don't end up with stuff building up on the, on the phone. Although we should take video with it, but the video on the iPod touches, it's good enough for like web video, which is all we really use it for. Hmm. But yeah, I, I, that's the thing about a photo stream too. Like, so you are going to be taking pictures with your 4S camera, certainly, and oh, videos yeah. and everything like that. Oh, yeah. And photo stream will be taking those pictures at least and magically syncing them so they appear in iPhoto. Um, but I'm not sure if the lack of flexibility, the apparent lack of flexibility will annoy you. For example, I've already seen people complaining today about the fact that they take screenshots on their iPhone, either because it's part of their job, they have to take screenshots of a particular app they're reviewing or something, and these are technology reviewers and writers and stuff. And that stuff shows up in iPhoto. And they don't really want, you know, because you take the picture, take the screenshot, it shows up in your photos folder on your phone and photo stream zips it over to iPhoto. And you don't really want the screenshots of some app you're reviewing to be an iPhoto. You got to like delete them and stuff. Uh, And then it's like, you know, what is it? Keep a thousand photos or 30 days with the photos, whichever uh, comes first. And it will trim that off on your iOS device. I think it'll work okay for the general case, but for people who are picky about what exists where? I don't know. Make it annoying. You 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 try it and you tell me after the first month of like taking pictures of your kids and stuff if this is better, worse, or the same than yeah. your old method of just like leaving them on the phone and forgetting them they're there and occasionally plugging it in and syncing them and stuff like that. Somebody on Twitter just said to me that uh, indeed, I'm paraphrasing. Indeed, uh, you know, ba- uh, chats and other things like that are. Uh, backed up and restored and they were there on the person's iphone 4 and now they're there on the person's 4s that's not what we're talking about actually well, well, well I don't, that's a good question though i saw a comment like that too well, you so, would, i of course that i can tell you that that's the case because i've done that before well, through, that, through but, but not, like, so obviously phones. that happens when you plug it into itunes right but what yeah what, what, what we're talking about an is icloud based restore right like, an icloud based restore or or just icloud based syncing of data like and in a way i might you know i might not want that i might not want and we'll, we'll we talked about verbs but i'll i'll just pick iMessage i might not want every single iMessage chat that i've had with you know 10 different people to show up on every iOS device that i own. i don't want that do you do i uh, I don't know. So, someone else mentioned in the chat room that apparently you can't delete photos from PhotoStream, so be careful with the uh, whatever it is you may be doing with your phone camera, taking pictures. Where, is it <laughs> send, where does it send them? It sends them up to iCloud, and then you get them on your local copy of iPhoto, right? Right. Right. If you, you but you're saying iPhoto to the new version, you're saying in a, in a in a in a situation where you take a picture of something and you look at the picture and you're like, oh, I don't like that picture. Well, guess what? It's forever in iCloud and forever in this iPhoto until you delete it. Is that what you're saying? Or, or is just someone in the chat room saying that you can't delete pictures from PhotoStream? Now, my my guess would be if I was a photo that I didn't want, I would delete it off my phone and I would delete it off of iPhoto. And then I would be surprised if, if I deleted off all of my devices, if it's still like if I turned on a new device, suddenly that picture shows up there, even though I had deleted it, successfully deleted it on all the other devices. Uh, that's what I was talking about, the lack of flexibility that, you know, there's this, there's a server repository of data 
and this is Apple's whole model. Apple's model is not like the Google model. Like Apple's Apple's model is server canonical, but it's it's application centric. It's not server centric. So you, there's no web interface to, to photo stream where you say this is the actual repository of your data and you can manipulate it here and then devices pull from that. It's iCloud is just like a waypoint. It's like a, a junction station or a conduit. It's not a thing in itself. So as far as I know, there is no like, well, here's the native way to look at your photos that are in photo stream. Uh, and your devices will will push it to your devices or they'll pull them down, you know, in those places. But this is the real repository. So if you want to delete it, delete it here. And then it will either still be on your devices and you can delete it from them or it will automatically get deleted off your devices. So it's weird when you have multiple devices. Like if I delete that photo from my photo, would I, do I want that to be deleted from my phone? Like what, what is the user expectation there? This is the user's mental model versus the model that Apple has made here. Some users would say... Uh, well, I was deleting it because it was an embarrassing picture and because my mental intent was that, well, obviously I want this deleted. It's an embarrassing picture. I can't believe it wasn't deleted from my phone the second I deleted it from my photo. But on the other hand, someone will be saying, I want this picture on my phone, but I don't really want it in my iPhoto library right. because I just use it as a wallpaper. So when I deleted an iPhoto and then it went and deleted it on my phone, I didn't want that. Right. So there's, there's plausible scenarios for users being upset no matter what Apple does in this situation. And there's no like, canonical middleman interface to like let me just look at what's in the conduit and say i want to eradicate this from history delete it from the source and then delete it from the devices and now i know that picture is nowhere because i can look in this magical icloud and say it's not in the icloud it's not on my iphone and it's not on my uh, my mac so when i buy a new ios device i sure as heck don't expect it to appear there when i enter my icloud info because where did it come from It, it doesn't exist anywhere but we have no ability, as far as I know, to inspect the contents of iCloud directly. It's all viewed through applications. Even if it's just a web application at iCloud.com, you're still kind of viewing it through the lens of an application, and there's no one canonical application. Uh, so, again, I think this, this will probably do what people want in the common case, but there are easily imaginable scenarios where, no matter what it does, it's going to do something that's unexpected or upsetting to someone. And more, more flexibility... And more, a better understanding of how it works would be great here, especially for pictures and stuff that can be embarrassing. You know, more explanation required. Yeah, maybe we'll all just use it for a while and get used to it. I mean, you get used to anything. Maybe the first two or three times that happens, you figure out, you start modifying your mental model to match how the thing actually works. And I think for the common case, people are just so thrilled when a picture shows up in multiple places. Like, you know, take, I take a picture and then it's automatically on my Mac, and I bought a new device and my pictures were there. That's that's 90%. You've already won at that point. People are just amazed when stuff works. And these details about deleting an embarrassing picture and stuff, I think, are probably only things that people like us are thinking about at this point. It would be nice to have, and I think Apple will have to eventually address it. But for the first version, just having your stuff sync on all your devices and not having to plug into iTunes uh, will be nice. Well, we will have some follow-up on this uh, for sure next week. Or you will, because I'm, I'm not the only one taking pictures of my iOS devices. But yeah, we can talk about it. Yeah, I'll try all these things out, or I'll try some of them out. And if you uh, if you have specific things you want me to try, e- email me or chat me, and I'll try them out. We can talk about it next week. And in the meantime, if you'd like to, you can hear previous episodes of this show, 5x5.tv slash hypercritical. You can follow John on Twitter. He's Syracusa, S-I-R-A-C-U-S-A. I'm Dan Benjamin right. on Twitter. I'm not doing it right. No. I spelled it. You did. You spelled it right, but you didn't break it up the right way. Okay. Maybe you, you want to break it up. It's okay. Go on. I'm Dan Benjamin on Twitter. And uh, 
this is hypercritical. Thanks for the reviews. Thanks for the ratings in iTunes. What else should we say? Sponsors, easydns.com slash 5x5. You've used coupon code 5 by 5 and you'll get 10 bucks off. Rackspace.com slash 5 by 5 That's it. Go play with your iPhone 4S. Have a good day. Bye, John. <laughs>